You're listening to Risk Takers podcast series coming to you from the Chesley Brown headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. Helping businesses explore better ways to anticipate and navigate risk before it becomes a crisis. We've been doing this since 1990. I'm your host, Brent Brown, Chairman and CEO of Chesley Brown Companies. And joining me this week is our special guest, Supervisory Special Agent, Dell Spry, FBI Retired. It's Brent Brown, Chairman and CEO of Chesley Brown International, and I'm delighted to have uh, on the podcast today with me, Dell Spry. Uh, Brent, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Dell. Dell uh, was a supervisory special agent with the FBI, did some uh, interesting things over the years. Um, before, we're, we're going to talk about the Aldrich Ames case All right, today, sure. but uh, before we get into that, you're from Birmingham, Alabama, right? Grew up in Birmingham, yes, sir. Sure did. So how does a young kid from Birmingham, Alabama, get to be the lead agent in one of the worst spy cases in U.S. history? Well, I always had a desire to work within the U.S. intelligence community, the FBI or the CIA or the DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, and I had applied to all three of those entities when I graduated from law school, actually. And the FBI was the first one that sent me a letter that said, uh, come on board. So I joined the <laughs> FBI. When I started doing investigations, I seemed to have a knack for pulling pieces out of the air and putting things together. So that landed me on a counterintelligence squad where I worked espionage cases, where a big piece of that was putting things together, just pieces of information that were scattered around in a number of places and just processing it and making something useful out of it. That led to me being assigned a number of what in the FBI we call unsub cases, and that means unknown subject. And it's the responsibility of the case agent or the lead investigator to figure out the identity of that unknown subject. And that's a pretty insurmountable task on occasion because they might say something that we have a gentleman in Atlanta, Georgia, who's committing espionage against um, XYZ Corporation, go find him. At which point I would look at you and say, sir, where do you want me to start? <laughs> right. It's Atlanta, Georgia. I said, well, can you help me a little bit? Well, we're pretty sure it's a male. And so, okay, well. So you'd have to put all those pieces together. Many times <clears throat> the initial information can be, I'm being a little facetious, but it can be just about that broad and uh, you just keep looking for pieces until you find the ones that start to fit. You dispose of the chaff, although you keep it on the side somewhere right. to refer back to. But you just keep grabbing pieces and more pieces and more pieces. And then finally, you do have a picture that will start to emerge of, okay, I'm looking for this individual with these characteristics and these qualities who hangs out with this crowd it's probably in this economic income level, and, and you just start working it. And by the grace of God, you, you'll come up with somebody and something, and folks will agree with you. So the uh, term unsub 
was not invented by criminal minds on TV. That was actually something the FBI. It was. Used. I'm not sure who in the <laughs> FBI, but that that is an FBI term. Yes, sir. All right. So let's get into the Aldrich Ames case. Um, tell me who Rick Ames was. Rick Ames was the son of a CIA uh, case officer named Carlton Ames. His father was a um, not a terrific officer, but an adequate officer. Rick never really uh, displayed a desire to work for the FBI. He went to college where he studied acting and drama, but he worked at the CIA during the summers as an intern, and that just spun into where he decided he wanted to become an analyst with the CIA. He put in for the job, was accepted. Now, he also did have case officer training, and for a while, Rick did serve overseas as a case officer. However, his talents were much better utilized from an analytical perspective because he was good at putting things together. So Rick spent most of his time as a career analyst with the CIA. Break it down for us. An analyst is someone that analyzes the information. He's not, he's not a spy, per no, se. Sir. No, sir. A case officer in the CIA is the person who is out meeting with uh, the individual who's supplying them information right. or intelligence. Right, right. Or, if you will, they're handling their spy. The case officer gets these tasking requirements from the analyst who says these questions will fit into the big picture if the person you're meeting with either has this information or can get this information for us. Then it's the case officer. My job would be to set up a covert meeting with that person, make sure that everything's completely safe both for them and for me. Mm -hmm. We have that meeting. I start talking to them to see if they can answer those questions. If not... Are you in a position to get the answer to those questions? Or if not, can I help you somehow get in a position where you might be able to answer those questions? When I've got the answers, I take it all back to the analyst who puts together their report, putting their piece of the bigger picture into the bigger picture. And it just grows from there, and I will get additional taskings for that source. Other case officers will get new taskings for their sources based upon the information I have supplied, and it just keeps growing until we have the picture we need and we we have what we're looking for, right. and we go get it. So, so uh, Rick Ames, Aldrich Ames, I think we refer to him as Rick. Yes, sir. Um, he had moved steadily up through the ranks of the CIA. Yes, he had become a GS-13. He may have been a 14, a GS-14 by the time he retired. I don't really remember, Brent. I'd have to go back and look. But he had risen steadily through the ranks. He was not a stellar performer by any means. And if you look at his history in the agency, he was promoted on a reasonably timely basis. But he never got any really good comments in his personnel file. And it was almost as if he was promoted just so I don't have to mess with him anymore. If I can get him promoted, he'll work for you, and I can get somebody else to fill his slot. It became that pattern of promotions with him. He didn't ever set the world on fire with the CIA, and that was partially responsible for his decision to work for the KGB, which is now the SVR, the Russian Intelligence Service. So, um, quick side note, was his dad still living when he was convicted? No, sir, I believe his parents were both deceased by the time he was convicted of espionage. Okay, so take us back to, this would be uh, the early to mid-1990s. I believe he started, he began spying, if I remember correctly, Brent, in... 
1985 or 86. Okay. So he started, and and we started seeing a lot of um, people that were assets to the the RCIA that were starting to go up missing, things yes, like sir. that. So over the the next few years after Rick began spying, our entire Russia program disappeared. I mean, we did not have one. We were operating almost completely in the dark. Our technical operations against the Russians had all ceased to produce information. Our sources, our assets, as you correctly refer to them, were being recalled to Moscow for various reasons, and we were losing touch with them, losing contact. We found out subsequently that they were being executed for espionage and treason. Right. At that time, of course, there was a lot going on with Russia and Gorbachev and Reagan, and the world was changing quickly at that time. We had to look at, do we have a technical penetration of the CIA? Because this was in, in generally the same time frame. If you recall, when they found the microphone behind the State Department emblem in a State that. Department conference room, that was actually a monitoring device that we traced back to the Russians. So now we're going, is there a similar device somewhere in Langley that we have not found? And is that what responsible for the compromise of all this information? When it turned out that it was not a technical penetration, obviously the next answer is, okay, maybe you've got somebody that's just being sloppy in their tradecraft. Mm -hmm. And by that I mean when they meet with their source, they don't take the surveillance. They don't do the necessary precautions. And someone with the intelligence of the counterintelligence service sees them meeting with the source, identifies who that source is, and arrests them, interrogates them vigorously, and finds out the information they need, and sometimes will double them back against us to give us false information. Or in the case of these particular assets, they just had them executed. Wow. So how many how many people do we estimate that uh, he was responsible for the execution of? Uh, gosh, Brent, I believe it was at least 12, maybe 13. Wow. I'm not positive on the numbers, but 12 or 13. Wow. So uh, the CIA knew they had a mole. Um, they were keeping this to themselves for a while, correct? They, they didn't call the FBI in right away. No, sir. Early on in the investigation, uh, when they weren't sure what they were looking at, right. the indicators continued to grow that they had a live source inside the wire, as we call it, that they had a live source operating in their own headquarters. But they didn't know that for sure. So they were and understandably hesitant to tell another organization, such as the FBI, that, hey, we've been penetrated. They did start a task force, joint task force, I believe it was called ANLACE, with the FBI and the CIA. And they did have a lot of good leads, but nothing ever panned out that pointed them in the direction of Rick Ames. And it's just a simple fact of life. There were other priorities that took over. Although this was a huge priority, the U.S. government gives the intelligence community only so much money they can throw at any one project. And other things came up that were more important because the leads were beginning to go stale. So the team was disbanded and pulled off. And really? Rick was allowed to, because we didn't know it was Rick, just the person who was doing it was just allowed to continue with nobody chasing him at that time. So the conception that, that a lot of people 
and public believe that that uh, the intelligence community gets unlimited funds is not true. Absolutely not true. So no, uh, sir. This is and this is a great example of where funds were were short, and and so th this was allowed to go on. Right. This was a perfect example where funds were allocated according to the priority. And because other priorities surpassed this one, that's where the money went. So um, how long was it disbanded and when did it come back together? Was it uh, just things, Was did they circle back to this? Brent, I'm going to say it was a couple of years, but I, honestly, I do not know once the team it was disbanded, how many years between that time and the time the next team was stood up. Um, so it wasn't the same team. It was a new team. It was a brand new team that I was chosen as the lead investigator or the case agent on. Right. Okay. So tell us, um, a lot of people might be interested in, in the the uh, way you're called in to be told about this case, that you're you're about to lead this uh, this interesting case let's just say it was it was kind of unusual like i said earlier i had established a reputation for being able to solve these unsub cases and my supervisor contacted me just called me into his office and said uh, tim caruso who was a good friend of mine tim was a unit chief at fbihq said caruso wants to talk to you so you need to set up an appointment to go over there so i did and called and talked to his secretary, and I didn't go over there that day, I don't remember, but within the next day or two, I went to headquarters just to see what it was he wanted. And it was good to sit there and chat with him the way I'm chatting with you right now, and then he got around talking about this big case that was coming back over from CIA headquarters, and it was an espionage unsub matter, and would you like to be the lead investigator on it? And I said, well, I think so. I said, tell me what it's about. He said, well, I can't not unless we read you into the program. And I said, well, Tim, what do I need to get due to read into the program? You said, you got to agree to be the lead investigator on it. And I said, well, okay, <laughs> that sounds fascinating. Yes, sir, I'll do it. And then we just kind of went from there. So when, when you use the term read into, uh, that, basically that they're, they're briefing you on what they have so far. Is that Correct. Right? Yes, sir. Okay. Within the FBI, within the entire U.S. intelligence community, most people don't understand this, but there are only three levels of classifications. You've got confidential, secret, and top secret. Those are the only classification and then unclassified. Those are the only classification levels. But above that, you have a number of caveats and other type of things that make information special. Right. We also have what you call compartmented information. And that means that information is so sensitive that it is compartmented and kept separate and apart from other information to where if I was trying to find it, if I was not authorized access to that, compart that compartment, I could not get it. The information that they had on Ames was compartmented. It was extremely sensitive and closely held information. Right. The majority of the secret level, some obviously at the top secret level. So I had to get read on to get the access to the information contained in that compartment so I could know gotcha. who it was that we were, or, or the characteristics of the person we were looking for, the damage that they had done, what we believed they had access to, that type of stuff when I say I had to get read on. So once you were read into the program, you were in? Oh, yes, sir, big time. So there's no way, to, no way to say, never mind, I don't want to do that. No, you're, when you get, I'm very fortunate. I consider myself very fortunate to have been involved in this case at all. But no, sir, when headquarters, particularly when they tap you on the shoulder, right. 
and you accept, well, you don't come back the next week and say, guys, I think I was just kidding. You just, <laughs> you just say, sir, where do you want me to march to? Right. And how fast? So, um, just out of curiosity, did y'all have a, a code name for the project that you're on or how did you refer to it within the Bureau? With, it was called, I believe the code name at that time was Night Mover. Uh, I believe finally when, and please Brent, don't hold me to this, but I believe when we jumped over to the criminal side of the case, which was the espionage side, I believe that the name changed at that point to play actor. Now, let me explain to the audience. I say when we jumped over to the criminal side, this case was started as a potential espionage case, but it was carried as a counterintelligence matter for the longest time. The reason for that was there are tech techniques that we can employ in a counterintelligence investigation that we would not want to employ in the criminal investigation simply because we don't want that information to come out in court. Once the character of the case changes and now we're no longer in the counterintelligence information looking around phase, now we have a targeted individual and we're going pretty much public because now we're charging him and we're going to be searching his house and executing search warrants. And so we're going to switch our techniques to the techniques that will be available for us to use in court according to the Constitution, the executive orders, and the attorney general guidelines. So I think it's important to, to say at this stage, too, Dale, that um, you know, the, the only reason you're really allowed to, to speak about the case at all is because it's so public and it's been uh, been through the court system. But there's nothing that that you ever compromise and, and techniques that are uh, secrets today or classified today. So everything that we're talking about is, is fairly public. It just Everything that we're talking about now, Brent, has either been in a book or on a magazine, or they even made a, a brief TV series about this called The Assets, I think. And there was a, a movie about it where I think uh, Patrick Swayze actually starred in the movie. Right. So everything that I'm talking about now is publicly available information. Yes, sir. So fascinating nonetheless. So you, you, uh, identify Ames as the main unsub. Yes, sir. And you, um, you start your, uh, your criminal case. Yes, sir. Um, so walk us through how you do that. Uh, was there a certain point that you knew for sure that you had the right guy? Yes, sir. We felt very confident we had the right guy. The, I can tell you the time that we were positive we had the right guy. We were doing in the FBI what we call a trash pull or a trash cover. And that's where I get out, and I actually have the fun task of going through your garbage when you set it out in front of your house, <laughs> house for the trash man to pick up the next day. We had been doing a trash cover on Rick's residence for, I don't know, a couple months maybe. And we had gotten a lot of good intelligence information out of his trash. Uh, people don't realize what they throw away, do People they? never pay attention to what they throw away. If, if I'm diligent, I'll have a list of who, who your friends and contacts are. I'll know who's sending you Christmas cards and birthday cards. Right. So if I want to talk to them about you, I know who knows you well. People throw away telephone records. They throw away, of course, everybody does online banking now, but they used to throw away their banking information they just it, it's amazing but no one ever stops to think well if i'm 
throwing this away. I know the trash man doesn't care, but would anybody else really care? And would they dig through my trash? Folks, the answer to that is yes. So you just go <clears throat> pull this trash like a trash man, or is this in, in the, the, the middle of the night? Tell it. We did it in the middle of the night, Brent. What we did, we had a team of our special surveillance group individuals, what we call SSG. Uh, I love working with the SSG in Washington, D.C., as much or more than anything I ever did up there. That was the most incredible group of guys and gals. And what we do... Are these special agents? Like no, sir, these are not agents. These are They do not carry guns. They do not have agent training. Uh, it's not really fair to refer to them as support personnel, right. but that's what they are. But they are there are analytical specialists when it comes to surveillance. They're our eyes and ears and boots on the ground. I'm not following you. I don't have time to follow you. I got 37 other cases. But if you're important enough, I'll put a whole team of SSG around you. And as God is my witness, they'll sit next to you and you'll never know it. Wow. You'll never know who these people are. Highly skilled individuals. Highly skilled individuals and love what they're doing and great at it. Wow. But we would go out, I think it was Tuesday night or Monday night, Tuesday morning, when uh, Rick's trash service would come by and pick up his trash so on Monday evening, we would all, I would go out with the SSG to their offsite, and we would hunker down, and we didn't come out until 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. And then uh, I would be in the lead car. My job was the van with the SSG team in it. They would station a couple miles away. I think there was a church where they'd park in that parking lot. I would have somebody in the car with me as a passenger, and it was different people, different nights. And they were my eyes. We would drive through the neighborhood and the surrounding neighborhood where Rick lived, one, two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, just to see if there was any activity. And there was on occasion the same gentleman who sometimes would be out walking his dog. We also, if people were up watching TV, if there were people that were in a position to just inadvertently look out the window and see us, we blew it off and we'd just come back next week and try again. But on the nights when I told the team, it's, it's good, let's execute. The van would pull in, uh, pull up, and not really park, just pull up in front of Rick's house. I had two guys, four guys in the in the back seat of the van. I had my driver and then another lookout. It's a passenger in the front seat. When I called them in, this team would drive up in front of Rick's house. The side door on that van would slide backwards. The back door opened out. It's two double doors, French doors type of thing mm-hmm. opened up. We had a trash can that was from the same trash company. It was identical to Rick's trash can. It was full of dummy garbage. When we pulled up while the wheels are still in motion and we're slowing down, those guys in the back, they're opening those doors and they're jumping out with that dummy trash can. The guys in front are sliding the doors open on the side and grabbing the real trash can pulling it in while the guys in the back just made a circle, left the dummy trash can, then jumped in right behind the real trash can. Everybody's shutting the doors and we're pulling away. I don't want to sound like a soap opera, but we could not have been stopped more than five seconds in front of his house. I mean, these guys were, it was clockwork and teamwork. They knew how to do it and they did it and it was was phenomenal. We would then go back to the offsite and for the record, we would all put on our OSHA required suits we would then get on the table where like an operating table dump his trash out but we would do it so it was a layer at a time we would take out a layer of trash photograph it the next layer down take out another layer photograph the next layer down when we finished going through the trash we would then 
physically put that trash back in his trash can as nearly as we had taken it out, just as close as we could possibly make it because we were dealing with a trained intelligence analyst and a trained CIA case officer, and we were just not going to take the chance that maybe the next morning he's pulling out of his driveway and decides to toss a newspaper, a Coke can, a cigarette pack, whatever, right. on top of the trash before he leaves. And while he's driving along, all of a sudden, intuitively, it strikes him, something's wrong with that garbage. There, that magazine should not have been on top. That should have been midway down on the bottom. And that would then make him, as a trained case officer, wonder, is anybody going through my trash? So we did everything possible to mitigate that, and he never had a clue. But getting back to your original question, we got a yellow sticky one night, the yellow post-it tab, uh, tabs, about the, the medium-sized ones. And one of our SSG guys who was picking up the pieces of paper, pulling them out of the other garbage and putting it together, he started, we could see that there was writing as he made this pad, put the pieces all together. Now, one of the gentlemen who was always out there with us, one of my team leaders, great guy, Every time before we would go out, he would always come up and say, kiss me, it's lucky. <laughs> I'd always kiss him on the top of the head every time we went out. I always gave him a sugar on his head for, for good luck. Well, on this night, I gave him a kiss before we went out, and when we came back and the one SSG started finding this note, boy, you talk about excited. And he runs over to him and he goes, kiss me, kiss me. Well, I'm just planting them all over his forehead, big as I can. And uh, sure enough, it was an operational note where Rick was practicing writing on what we call a one-time pad. And I'll explain that in a second. It was a message to his KGB handler that he was unable to meet in B, which we later determined was Bogota, on such and such a date and suggested an alternative meeting date. He also wrote on that same note, I believe, that he said he was not able to read pipe. That meant that the KGB SVR had set a signal for him at a site that was designated as pipe, and for whatever reason, when he went to the site, he did not see the signal. He was unable to read it, so they needed to set another signal for him. Now, the thing about the one-time pad that he was writing on, the, the Yellow poster stickage was about the size of what we refer to as a one-time pad. And it's where you can practice writing a secret message, and it is unbreakable. It's unbreakable, and they call it a one-time pad because you, as my handler, you make up the code. You're the only one that knows it, but you've given me the code in advance. But I only use it one time, and then I destroy it. Then you make up a new code. Use it one time. And then I destroy it. So the only people in the world who know that code are you and me. And if you ain't telling, I ain't telling. So if they find something, they might know what they got, but they don't know what it says. So that's what he was doing. So for our, for our listeners that are sitting at your desk and listening to us and you want to Google something, uh, I believe there's pictures of that post-it note that have been pieced back together from your investigation. Yes, sir, there are. If you're curious about that. So he was, in effect, he was practicing what he was going to write on the one-time note. Yes, sir. And that kind of buried him. 
That was the first. We knew for a fact when we got that yellow sticky, and we and we saw he was writing his KGB handler about messages that were covertly set that he was unable to read, talking about a covert meeting he was going to have overseas in Bogota on a certain date. Right. We knew then there was no doubt. We were sure before, but that nailed it. So your your SSGs, they they that's not just in the U.S. that they're following and doing their thing, but that. You followed him when he traveled out of the country? Yes, sir, we did. We had a CIA team and an FBI team that surveilled him. Now, primarily, the CIA will have responsibility for anything like this that happens overseas. Right. But if it's a law enforcement action, we will often get involved. Well, and there are also video that our listeners can find showing him walking around a hotel where he thought he was supposed to meet someone, but... I, there might be a video where he's walking around a bowling alley, I think, down in Columbia, where right. he's looking around for his KGB handler. Uh, I think that might be online still. Yeah, I'm, I'm maybe on YouTube or something like that. Yes, People, sir. There's a, there's a lot of good stuff, uh, including at the end of this broadcast, we'll tell you how to, to find more information about Dale. Um, but um, so you're, you're pretty sure... Well, you're certain at this point yes, that sir. you're on the right one. Um, what other techniques that you can share with us um, that you use? Did you wire his house? Did you um, anything to do with his automobile? Were you tracking him? Was there, you know, this was uh, getting close to 30 years ago now, so things that we thought were real high tech then uh, might seem a little amateur nowadays, but they're still pretty cool stuff. So what, what were y'all doing? One of the things that we did, Brent, was we put a FLIR device in his car, the forward-looking infrared receptor. I forget what yeah, it stands right. for. That's, but that's pretty That would allow us to follow him wherever he went. We, could, we, we had another group of SOG, Special Operations Group. They are agents, and they flew airplanes, among other things. And so we had a plane that was up surveilling him pretty much towards the end of the investigation 24-7. And these guys, they, we had a flare in his car that would send out a signal, let us know where he was. But the pilot and the co-pilot in the plane, these guys were so good. They could recognize Rick's car by the heat signature. He drove a Jaguar, and wow. they could, they'd be flying however many hundred feet up they are. And somebody say, you see his car? And go, yes, the third one up from that truck. Look at the heat signature. Wow. So it's, just, it's amazing the stuff they can do. How'd you get that stuff on his car? We got that on his car when we actually had him come to FBI HQ. We had, through, through the CIA, we had set up a conference on a uh, Baltic drug initiative, and Rick was working Baltic drug cases. And we had his boss, who we had read into the program, was, was helping us. He had Rick come to this conference to brief them on this Baltic narcotics issue because no one in the agency knew as much about it as Rick did or was as smart as he was. So that appealed to his ego. Right. You cannot do it now because everything about headquarters has changed, but back then you could drive your car up through a driveway to the very front door of FBI HQ, which is what we had Rick do. We gave him a, you know, a VIP visitor's pass to get into that area. When he got in, I met him at the door. I took him upstairs to where the conference room was. When, um, when we had him in the conference room, I called down to our team, our guys were getting ready to take his car apart, and I said, I've got him in sight. The conference is starting. You guys go ahead and take his car. 
They drove his car into the garage where they work on cars, FBI cars. They drove his car into the garage at the basement of the FBI HQ where they took his car, dismounted it as much as they needed to, and put all types of devices in it and put it all back together. <laughs> now, the way they did this as quickly and effectively and efficiently as they did, we rented a car that was identical to his a couple weeks before, kept it for a week, took it apart, put it together, took it apart, put it together, did all the things they were planning on doing to make sure we could get them done in a certain amount of time, and then boom, when he showed up, we were good to go. We, they did what it was they needed to do to this car, drove it back up, parked it where it, was, where it had been, and when he came out, there it was, and he had no idea. Practice makes perfect. Yes, sir. All right, so you, you got the surveillance on his car. You found the note. Um, you bugged his house. There we was... did bug his house, yes, sir. Uh, that was a little bit controversial back then because we were breaking and entering into his house under a court order. Right. Now, everyone today knows what a FISA court order is, and the FISA court system and the FBI's use of it has come under some abuse. I'm not going there because I'm not that smart. I'm going to let the powers that be decide <laughs> these issues. But back when we did this, we did have a, a FISA court order that allowed us to go to put a microphone monitoring device in Rick's house to see what he was doing. And we were also able to put some te technical equipment in that would allow us to capture any messages that he might be typing. Um, after we had done this, it came up at trial that we had done, in substance, an illegal search and seizure at night without an effective search warrant, and that we had taken stuff from his house, which we had done, without leaving the required inventory list of what you take. If I do a search warrant on your house and I find evidence of a crime right. and I take that evidence, I have to give you a list of what I have taken. And if you win your case, I got to give everything back to you. We broke into Rick's house under FISA court warrant, did seize minor things like a, a spool tape that he had actually typed messages on. And we took that and read his messages. But we didn't leave from a, a typewriter. From his typewriter. typewriter. The strange thing about that, Brent, was you know you want you want to see it movies about the FBI, and CIA, where we're using these magnificent computers to crack all this stuff. <laughs> what we did, we found that spool, and one of the agents pulled the tape out and saw that there was typing on it. We got a mirror so we could read it backwards and upside down. Stuck a pencil <laughs> in the spool, stood there and pulled the tape out and read it. And then somebody's writing down what the guy that's reading it's saying. That's how we did it. No computers involved, <laughs> just human ingenuity. You probably didn't even have a computer on your desk back no, then. No, sir. Not, <laughs> not much. So you, you've got your case built. Um, the decision is made to make the arrest. Correct. Tell, tell us, walk us through that day. We had a meeting at Washington Field Office. Uh, it was headquarters. The director was not there, director free, but uh, the assistant directors were there. Several people, I recall, from the White House were there and from the National Security Council was there. They got a brief as to everything that had taken place and where we were in the investigation. And I don't know if the decision was made right there at that meeting that we were going to arrest him the next day, but a decision was made either there or at the White House to the director of the FBI and the AG that, hey, we're going to take this down. So I, I believe it was... It was President's Day, February 16th, 1995. I'm not sure of the date, 94, mm -hmm. 95. 
The decision had been made that that was the day we were going to arrest Rick. We uh, set up some distance away from his house. We had an arrest team that was going to arrest Rick. I was part of that team. And what we had done that day, like I said, it was President's Day, a holiday. We had again set it up with his supervisor to call Rick into work, to work on a paper that only Rick was smart enough to work on. He yeah, went. He went to his ego. Had that, yes, sir, that appealed to his ego. He got up on President's Day, went to work. We were ready. We had looked at every way in and out of his house to Route 123, which is the way he would take to get to FBI HQ. I believe, as I recall, there were two different ways he could have come either way, but we thought we knew which way he was going to go. But on top of that, we had a lookout that it was a camera that was focused on the front of his house, so we'd know when he came and when he left and if anybody was with him. And we had an agent living in a house that was monitoring the lookout, so the agent could tell us which direction Rick had gone so we would know where to interdict him. So you had agents living across the street from him so you could... Yes, sir. All right. All right. Yes, sir. When the, when Rick came out and got in his car and he backed up and the agent told us which direction he was going, we went to an intersection right around the corner from Rick's house, the direction he was headed, with a stop sign to where he would have to stop. When Rick pulled up behind us, it was two cars in front of him. Uh, Mike Diner and I, we were in one car. I forget. Gosh, and I hate myself. I forget exactly who was in the other car. But when Rick pulled up, all he saw was a car that was turning left and a car that was turning right. He pulled up behind us, no big deal, waiting on us to move. At that instant, when he stopped, the third car that he had passed pulled up behind him and boxed him in. We jumped out of our cars, ran back to his car. Mike Donner, who Mike's a big boy, Mike reached in Rick's <laughs> car and got him and pulled him out and put him down on the top of the car. I reached up and grabbed his hands and pulled him back behind his back while Mike was holding his neck, put the handcuffs on him, told him was, he was under arrest on charges of espionage. We then threw him in the back seat of our car, and uh, one of our agents jumped in the front seat of his car, and all four cars left. Now, had you, for whatever reason, that time of morning on a holiday been standing at your living room window drinking coffee and <laughs> saw us jump out and you thought a kidnapping? was taking place, if you would have yelled, Carla, come here, <laughs> by the time she got there, the only thing you would have seen was emptiness because we were gone. gone. We had already left. We were out of there completely. Took Rick to an off-site where we had also— Let me let me tell our, yes, our listeners that, that um, you, you at the time, you weren't real happy that there were photographs made of this, but uh, his story, uh, as we have the, the history now— Again, go to your Google, and, and uh, you can Google um, Ames arrest, and you can see Special Agent Del Spry putting the handcuffs on him. There's some really, really interesting pictures that were made by your SSGs. Our right? SSG, yes. They were told not to make <laughs> pictures, and they did. I'm personally glad they did. but Fascinating they, stuff. They were told not to. Well, they, they documented history, and I'm, I'm glad they did. So, so you got him. You took him back to... Um, it was an off-site we had set up, okay. yes, sir. And um, we had our behavioral sciences people, our psychologists, psychiatrists working with us, and they said, do this in order to enhance his willingness to cooperate. And some of the things that we had done, we had a picture of Rick blown up, a huge picture of him in Bogota, Colombia, at this meeting right. with his KGB handler. 
And uh, he's, we have pictures of him looking around trying to find out where the guy is he's supposed to be meeting with. We also had a file cabinet that had his name on every drawer and it was stuffed with nothing but dummy paper. Um, oh, we were all, well, first of all, when Rick walked in, he sat down in a chair. We told him to have a seat. And uh, I went over and started looking through the file cabinet, pulling out files that had his name on it and talking to Mike Donner or Rudy Garner or whomever, you know, say, we need to make sure we cover this, this, just making stuff up. While he's sitting there staring at this picture of himself on the wall, he's in shock. And it really, I think he doesn't, it doesn't register what he's looking at. He knows he's got to stare at it because that's picture special, but it's not hitting me why it's special. Right. And all of a sudden he recognizes that it's him in Bogota and that we've got a picture of him waiting on his KGB handler. We had also been told by the behavioral sciences people, they said, after you arrest his wife, bring her past him and take her to another room, but make sure she's in handcuffs. So we brought his wife, Rosario, through the room where we had him in handcuffs. And, of course, she looks at him, and she's crying. And she looks at him and goes, Rick, Rick. And then we escort her into another part of the building and put her in another room. Well, just he just, that deflated him. He just, all the air went out of him at that point. Did he know that? Was that the first time he knew that she had been arrested? No, sir, because the behavior science people had also told us, they said, after you arrest Rick, when you've got him in your car, notify the arrest team so they'll go in and begin the arrest of Rosario and also search of the house. You want somebody to say over an FBI radio, we are in Rick's house searching it for evidence of espionage. And that's exactly what we did. And that kind of wore him down a little bit, too, before wow. we got to the offsides. So it was uh, more than just... You know, I'm, I'm just an old beat cop. We we pulled people over and just made the arrest. This was a whole lot more planning to, the, you know, what I used to do, you know, arresting a DUI or any other. You, you really thought this through. and Think about know, this, Brent. This individual was not only a spy. He had stolen and given to the Russians millions. We don't know how many hundreds of millions of dollars worth of information on our submarine programs, our satellite programs. Wow. You pick the technology, acoustic programs. He had given it all to the Russians. And that the value of that, I don't I don't know that we ever estimated a true damage value. But then on top of that, if he was responsible for the execution right. of twelve people, right. doesn't that also make him a serial killer? And yes. the fact that he was committing espionage, not against an individual or against a company, as tragic as that is, but against a nation, and he did not care. To this day, it's a, you can toss a coin, Bob Hansen, Rick Ames, whichever one. Bob Hansen was an FBI agent who was arrested for spying for Russia. After? After Rick, Rick was arrested. But there is... I respectfully submit, still to this day, Rick is probably the worst spy as far as damaging the United States government and our allies. He is the worst spy in U.S. history. He hurt us immeasurably. And when I say immeasurably, one of the things the FBI was required to do was a damage assessment of Ames' espionage and treachery for Congress. I don't, I don't know what the final number was, but I'm positive we did not have a dead-on accurate damage assessment. The damage was too great and too broad, too complex, and too, too multifaceted. Wow. So 
thank you for sharing this fascinating story, this real life uh, history right here in front of us. Um, he's still alive. He's still in. Uh, is he? Was, did they execute him? Is he no, sir. Court? He he will serve a life sentence in prison. The it's been a couple decades ago, but the last any information I had, he legitimately thinks that someday he will be part of a prisoner exchange between Russia and the United States. That will never happen. That's just something that he needs to hold on to. Right. But that's not ever going to happen. So he's sitting, rotting in federal prison, yes, probably sir. still as cocky as he was before. Uh, I, I would respectfully answer the question of that as being yes, Brent, and I will tell you that because I do know for a fact that his wife's sentence was contingent upon Rick passing an FBI-administered counterintelligence polygraph. Rick did not pass the polygraph. He lied and withheld information. The judge still gave his wife the same sentence because he said he would not punish her because Rick was a jerk. However, I know that we continued to interview Rick or elicit information from him after that fact, and there were other polygraphs that he submitted to, and to the best of my knowledge... To this day, he has never passed a polygraph. To this day, we still do not know everything that he has done, everything that he gave, every person whose death he was responsible for, wow. every dollar that was misappropriated. He's, he's, he hurt us big time. We just never know. Well, we're uh, grateful for what you did and, and uh, your team and, and putting this guy behind bars. It's, it's, uh, it's really a horrific uh, case. And we're um, proud that you took some time to share that with us. If, if, uh, if our listeners would like to, to know more, um, uh, as we've been saying before, Google, but, but you can also get our website, chesleybrown.com. Uh, we have a, a YouTube channel that I, I know that you can find a documentary that, that we produced on uh, Dale Spry and the Ultra Sames case. I think you'll find that fascinating. There's other things on YouTube that you can also find. Um, and uh, we're fortunate enough that, that uh, Dale did retire from the FBI, although he still gets called back for various training and other expertise that, that uh, they're lucky that he still answers those calls. But we're very fortunate that Dale Spry is our managing director of uh, investigations here at Chesley Brown International and Chesley Brown Group. So uh, if we can ever help you, go to chesleybrown.com, contact us. If you want the, the world's best spy catcher, Uh, to handle an investigation for you, he and his team. We stand ready to to take those calls. So thank you very much, Del. Thanks for being with us. It has been an honor. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Have a great day, everybody.